Hello, you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. I'm Ellen Buchan, Insights and Communication Executive at Amber and BG. Today on the podcast, I was delighted to be joined by Dr. Frosva Bricker-Drew. There were so many things I wanted to ask her about. She's authority on emotional intelligence, social capital and diversity initiatives. But I also had to ask her about the documentary she was part of and some of the organisations that she started up. Here's that conversation. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Could we start off by telling me a little bit about yourself and your career, please? So I'm one, thank you for having me on the podcast. And I am Frostwell Booker Drew, Dr. Frostwell Booker Drew, and I serve as Vice President of Community Affairs for the State Fair of Texas. But in addition to that, I um, have my own business where I provide consulting um, to nonprofit organizations and I'm an author. So I do a number of different things. One of those things I'd like to speak to you about is um, you're kind of the authority on emotional intelligence. And before we kind of delve into that, I was hoping you could kind of define what you believe emotional intelligence is, just as a grounding for our listeners. Sure. You know, emotional intelligence is really about the way that we um interact with people, but using our um, emotions as a filter and helping us to understand various situations and um, encounters. I am intrigued with the way that people build relationships and part of being able to understand, you know, how to read a room or what's going on um, with people. We use our emotions as a filter to help us understand if this is a safe place, if this is, you know, uh, an environment that I don't feel comfortable in. And so being able to not only understand your inter um, personal feelings, but being able to also understand your feelings in relation to others and be able to know the difference between empathy and sympathy. That's part of emotional intelligence, whereas sympathy is I'm able to feel sorry for someone and empathy is really about placing myself in their shoes. And you have to have a level of emotional intelligence to be able to do that. And so um, emotional intelligence, I think, is so critical in not just our personal lives, but in the way that we show up in the workplace and being able to read environments and use, you know, the um, not only what we're sensing, but being able to read our feelings and the feelings of others can actually help us have better workplace environments, but better relationships. So could you give me some maybe more examples of how emotional intelligence is kind of used in the workplace and how it can kind of affect a professional setting? Sure. You know, one of the things that we we don't often pay attention to is it's it's other people's feelings. I recently wrote an article that talked about what we're witnessing so often is people's um, decision-making is based on how they see themselves and not taking into account the collective and how other people feel. And so in the workplace, it's important for us to be able to walk into an environment and understand that, you know, without someone saying to you, I'm having a bad day, that you are paying attention to 
to the experience that someone is having and and not necessarily placing your experience on them and going, well, when I do this, this is what you know, the response would be, so they should do the exact same thing. But I think it's truly tapping into um, your ability to, to, to listen and understand others in a very different way. Um, and I think a lot of times in our workplaces, we are so focused on doing our task that we don't take into account the, the importance of the collective. And so if I have a coworker who is, is not having a good experience, experience. That's going to impact my work. So how do I begin to pay attention to them? And, you know, even with a supervisor, you hear the term of coaching up. How do I then begin to help in in those spaces without coming out and going, what's wrong with you? But beginning to, to say, you know, how can I um, use the 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 skills that I have in paying attention to this situation and help make this an environment that's one where it's welcoming or if someone has a bad day that I'm not going, well, why are you having a bad day that I'm able to go? I see that um, you're, you know, t- today may be challenging. What can I do for you? I know when, you know, I, I used to supervise a team across the country when I worked at World Vision. And one of the things I would always say to my team is, so what do you need from me? And I think that really opens the door for people feeling as if they're in a safe space and that they are able to be themselves and and be transparent and know that I'm there for them. I think we need more of that in the workplace where we're paying attention to others. We fail to realize sometimes that people bring the totality of who they are when they show up to work. So if they've had an argument with a, a significant other, you know, and their partner and they come in they're still dealing with that. And I think we sometimes see people just for the function of their jobs. And we don't see people in the totality of who they are, that they may be mom or dad or grandparent and all these different things. They bring that with them when they come to work. And so we have got to create workspaces that, um, not ignore that, but recognize that that exists and begin to give people space and the empathy that they need so that they can produce better. Because otherwise, when people don't feel respected and they don't feel that um, they're valued, then they're not going to have the same type of loyalty. And so part of the emotional intelligence is paying attention to all of those dynamics that exist in the workplace. So coming from a business school perspective, there's obviously ways that you can teach finance or strategy, but how would you go about kind of increasing your own emotional intelligence and kind of flipping that around? How could a business school kind of teach emotional intelligence? I think that's an excellent question. You know, it, it really starts off with, and, and some people will say, oh, that that's going so deep. But I think it's really paying attention to the trauma that we all experience at some point. You know, as you look at, there's more and more research around trauma-informed care, which is, you know, not looking at someone and saying, what's wrong with you, but, but saying, you know, what happened. I think in business schools, there are some real opportunities to begin to understand relationship science and begin to understand the power of connection because not that relationships should solely be about transaction, but relationships can be that and transformative. How do we help business 
students understand the power of their own emotions and that people tend to buy based on emotions. You know, yeah, quite often we will, you know, look at logic and say, well, I only have this much in my account, so I'm only going to spend this much money. But the reality is most people are driven by their emotions. What would happen if business schools really began to start helping people understand, one, how trauma, which, you know, plays into people's emotions and how they respond. What happens when you understand that about yourself, you're going to be more uh, adept to doing that for others, but also understanding how emotions drive people into some of their decision making and how they spend money, you know, how they save money. So if we were able to teach people the power of relationships, you know, money doesn't spend itself. It's people that spend money. So how do we really begin to start understanding how people think and and again, the decision making that's going to help business students make better decisions, but it's going to help them better understand the people that they're trying to do business with or trying to analyze, you know, so that they can get them to buy more items. Um, I think that that's so critical. If we're making business deals, we're not doing that in isolation. We're doing that with people. And so I think it's not just business. I think it is, you know, all of our society for some reason um, there there isn't the value on relationship building and what we do know is that there, there are all these books that are written on leadership and at the core of all these books we're talking about how do people use their relationships to move the needle to influence people to get things done and at the core of all of it is about this one-on-one relationship that we have and relationships are driven by emotions. You know, it was interesting. There's a study that came out that talked about how people's emotions when they're together and they're having really deep conversations, that their brain um, patterns mirror one another. So there is something to be said that when we're in proximity to each other, there is even this chemical or neurological experience that we have because we're part of community. What would it look like if business schools began to tap into that and teach that? It could really make a difference in the way Way that we see the workplace and the way that business can be a part of the transformation of the workplace in a different way. I absolutely couldn't agree more. So I think you kind of touched on it in that answer, but I'd love to ask you more about um, the idea of social capital, which is something that I write about a lot. So could you tell me about what social capital is and perhaps go into how to build it? You know, that is one of my favorite things. I struggle with the term because I mentioned a little earlier this idea about transaction and and transformational relationships. And I think, you know, so often we see relationships being just that. It's about, I give you my money, you give me something in return, and it's about the exchange of services. But relationships are so much more. That's what social capital is about. Social capital is about relationships, association, networks. The term was coined by a gentleman named Hannafin who saw 
some parents talking, you know, this is like early 19th century. And you see some parents talking and they're sharing resources. And he, and he says they're sharing social capital. The term has gone through a number of iterations. You know, it's shown up in economics where we talk about people being actors. Um, and it has gone, you know, through, like I said, a number of different disciplines um, where, you know, you have a great scholar, Robert Putnam, who has done amazing work in researching social capital in 2010. He wrote a book called Bowling Alone. And in this book, he talks about um, at one time, bowling leagues were so important. And I remember as a kid, and I tell this story often that I remember going with my aunt to bowl and I didn't know what was going on, but it was, you know, you knew they were bowling, but there was something else happening where people were sharing information. I remember listening to them help some of their friends, like, you know, someone would need a job and they go, hey, you know, come to my job on tomorrow and I'm going to introduce you to my boss and I'm going to see if I can get you hired or you don't have a church. Oh, why don't you come to church with me? And and this is where my church is located. So they were sharing information and using their network to help one another. And so what Putnam is saying is that in, in this book is that bowling leagues were so important because that's what was going on and that bowling leagues began to die off dinner parties. You know, at one time people were having more dinner parties and that was an opportunity to exchange social capital and that those don't happen as much anymore. And so in his work, he talks about when communities have high social capital, what you notice is that educational outcomes are higher. You notice that crime is lower. You notice that people vote and they're civically engaged. And that's because relationships, when, when we're in proximity, there's a level of accountability. I often joke about my friends on social media are bullies because they will you know, put up little pictures about, I voted, did you vote? And it causes this accountability. But when people are isolated and they're not in relationship, that's when you see things like crime occur even more. And when you see, you know, that that people aren't voting because they feel like it doesn't matter. And, and so social capital is the glue in ways that we don't recognize. And, and what makes it so imperative is trust. Social capital cannot exist without trust. And so... I think I understood it right. One of your articles said that it was harder for women to expand their social capital. And I was wondering, why is this? You know, I think for a number of years, it was because women weren't all in the workplace. And I think it's also because women, you know, up until the last several decades have not been in positions of power. Quite often, women's networks were, you know, related to their family and the home life because that's where women were, you know, spending a significant amount of time or they were in um jobs that weren't necessarily giving them access to people that may have had influence. As women climb the, the corporate ladder um, and are taking more positions, you know, even within nonprofits, you have more access to people that also builds your network. I think the challenge is for a lot of women, because we're not in, you know, positions of, of um, senior leadership in a lot of companies, I think what ends up happening for women is, is that they have to rely upon this ideal of sponsorship, that they actually need, 
you know, not only men in their companies to to be allies and advocate for them, but they also need women in those positions to serve as, as sponsors and open up doors. And I think so often we get confused between mentors and sponsors. You know, a mentor is someone that's giving you great advice and guiding you, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that is a person who's advocating for you on your behalf when, you know, um, you're trying to get a job. These are people who are talking about you and you don't even know it. You're not even in the same room, but they're telling other people, you need to know this person. And so for a lot of women, um, when they don't have people that can advocate for them and serve as sponsors, it limits their network sometimes and their ability to have social mobility and and move up the ladder. And so we know that relationships are, are are critical to that. You can be an extremely talented human being. And yet, if you don't have the relationships sometimes in, in the workplace or even academically where you're trying to get a letter of recommendation and you know apply for a, a position, you need people that are in positions that can advocate for you. That's why it's so important for women to think about, you know, both having the mentor, but having the sponsor who can do that for you because it's critical. I think that leads us really nicely on to my next question, which is you're a founder of Heritage Giving Fund, and I would love to hear more about that. You know, Heritage is is one of those things that um, I am so proud of that there are two ladies that I get to co-labor with, um, Dr. Halima Malik Francis and Akila Wallace. And Akila came to both Halima and I and said, I want to start a giving circle. And what we noticed was, um, particularly in philanthropy, um, research has shown that 0.6% of all donations in the United States go to um, organizations led by Black women, 0.6%. And when you begin to start adding other um, ethnicities, and it's not that the number becomes, you know, huge, it's not. And so we noticed that a lot of organizations led by Black women were not getting the level of funding that they needed in order to, you know, continue and sustain the great work that they've been doing. So we started Heritage. And it was really a group of women coming together and pooling their funds, you know, from $500 to $1,000 a year. And it's been amazing that since we started in 2017, we've raised over $100,000 of our money. There has not been, you know, corporate support or, or grants or, you know, that type of philanthropy involved. But it's really been, you know, women pooling their resources. And we've had friends, you know, of the group who aren't necessarily members, but believe in what we're trying to accomplish. And so we've been able to help a lot of organizations in our local community of Dallas that may not have had um, the support that they needed, but it's helped them get on the radar of other funders. But in addition to that, our members are folks that are in various sectors, whether it's nonprofit management or, you know, they're in the legal field and they're attorneys. I mean, we have psychologists. We have an amazing group of women. And so they surround these nonprofit leaders with their expertise and provide technical assistance. We do leadership circles. We have informal mentoring. But it's also a way for our women to connect to each other and learn from one another. Um, and so it's just more than just 
just writing a check and giving it to a group. It is so holistic in the approach of making sure that we're educating our membership as well as the organizations that we fund. And I'm just proud of the trajectory of how we're continuing to grow and, you know, inspire other women to know that when you pull your money um, and, and your time and your, your talent, you can make a difference in your community. You don't need millions of dollars to do that. That literally is so incredible. And it seems like you've always kind of been passionate about this. I was reading that when you were at university, you worked to improve diversity of the faculty. And I just mm-hmm. know how universities can focus on creating more diversity. That was one of those situations where um, it I didn't start off going, this is what I'm going to do. I saw a need. And um, as, as a college student, I was very involved on campus, which was really the beginning of me building social capital um, and not recognizing that that's what I was doing. But I was so involved in different organizations on campus. And as a result, I started building my network and I became increasingly aware that we didn't have the diversity on campus, whether it was, you know, black people or, you know, folks that were um, Hispanic or women. And I noticed that there was some challenges in those areas. And so I wanted to Um, bring that to the attention of our administration. And one of the things I kept hearing was, well, they don't exist. We can't find people of color that, you know, are are, um, in in academia and have PhDs. And so one of the things that um, I started pushing was, well, you've got to pay attention to where people are. And so often it's easy to have the excuse because I don't see it. It doesn't exist. And that's so arrogant. And so helping them understand without knowing that's what I was doing at that time was asset mapping. It was how do you begin to start paying attention to the assets in your community? And this is based on the work of Kretzman and McKnight, where they talk about regardless of how, you know, challenged a community may be, their assets, whether it's in the institutions, it's the associations, it's the local economy, you know, whether it's open physical space or even looking at individuals that we often don't pay attention to. And for me, it was helping the university, um, again, without knowing that's what I was doing, helping them asset map and go, okay, so what are the organizations where we can begin to start tapping into to identify people of color that may be engineers? You know, so the National Association of Black Engineers or, you know, Hispanic Engineers, How can we begin to start working with those groups to bring those um, folks and and to the the university to to support us? So I think that's critical is, one, universities have to recognize that diversity enhances us. It it is not something that is check the box. It is providing unique experiences and perspectives that enhance your student body. So that's one. And two, it really is recognizing that folks of color exist that have PhDs that are able to come in and teach and provide those unique perspectives and experiences to your students. But you can't just look in traditional um, realms that you've always looked in because you're going to always get the same result. And universities have to be willing to expand their own networks. You know, quite often we all tend to want to be with people that are just like us. And that's called bond 
bonding social capital. But one of the goals that universities and organizations, as well as individuals have to have is thinking about bridging social capital. How do you connect to people that are different in not only their ethnicity, but gender, sexuality, you know, ideology? We have to be comfortable with with connecting to those who may not be like us, because if we continue to have homogeneous environments, we're going to continue to have homogeneous ways of thinking. And we need to have um, very different ways of thinking because that's how we're going to solve a lot of the problems that we face. I couldn't agree more. Um, So one of my last questions is going to be about the documentary that you were in called Friendly Captivity. Could you tell me more about that? So I had an amazing opportunity to go to India with a group of women. And the goal of the documentary was to show that um, as American women, you know, you sometimes believe that you're in this country, that you have all these resources and you don't recognize that sometimes you're in captivity without recognizing it to the resources and to this idea of, of the American dream. And so when we went to India, it was amazing to meet all these women who may not have had some of the same resources that we did, but there was a level of peace that they had that we didn't necessarily um, either have ourselves or, or, or know people around us who had the same level of contentment. And it wasn't that they were satisfied in their situation. I don't ever want to give that illusion, but I, I do want to say that despite some of the obstacles that they faced and that they were fighting to change, that you saw women who still had this peace. And even though we had all these resources, that doesn't translate to to having peace and joy and happiness. And so it was just a great opportunity to bond with some amazing women, um, both from the U.S. and and from India, but it opened up the door to a lot of self-discovery. I think it was that documentary that pushed me to really think about going back to school and getting my PhD and really think about ways that I can work with women and support women through a heritage or through some of the writings that, you know, I get to do. But that trip served as a catalyst to do that. It sounds amazing and I really want to watch it. But yeah, there's so, you were a very difficult person to research for the podcast. And I say that in the nicest way because there was just so many things I wanted to ask you about. You've written books, you've started so many organizations, and there were so many articles and such interesting things. And yeah, it was just the list goes on and on and on. And just as my last question, and kind of more out of personal interest, I would love to know what you feel your kind of personal and um, proudest achievement has been today. The strangest thing people, well, well, I don't think it's strange. People may say it is. I think the biggest accomplishment for me is my daughter. My daughter is 21 years old, and I often say she is my heart walking outside of my body. Um, to be able to um, have a role in raising this phenomenal human being um, is, is the best thing for me because I just see the best of myself and the best of her father in, um, in in her. And I see the possibilities that she has that I didn't have. And so 
I look forward to watching her to continue to find her voice and grow into, you know, this amazing woman who who makes a difference in this world. And so, you know, yes, I'm proud of getting the Ph.D. and I'm proud of, you know, writing and and the the wonderful people that I've been able to meet and and work with and impact. All that's important. There is nothing like being able to see an extension of yourself and the best of yourself um, grow up. Up and and see them figure out what they're going to do and how they're going to make their impact. That's the best thing I've ever done in my life was was having that that little human being. Oh, that is a great answer. Um, but I'm afraid that's all we have time for. But thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I so appreciate it. Thank you so much to Prosper for being on the podcast today. If you'd like more about leadership, head to www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition and make sure to look out for and subscribe to the Ambition Podcast. <laughs>